Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8, and we pick up this morning with verse 48. John 8, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This morning we'll observe the truth that those who have eternal life and therefore keep Jesus' word Trust in him who is the eternal God, so that we will faithfully call others to trust in him, this eternal God, the God-man. Point number one, if you do not keep Jesus' word, you don't know God. This is as simple a truth in the Bible as there is. If you love me, you obey me. If you know me, you will keep my word. You are my disciples if you abide in my word. I know of a circumstance where someone, having abandoned the church received a phone call from a number of friends, but one of those friends who had called to say, we miss you, the response was, well, you know, we're in the Word. And one would have to ask, what does that mean? Well, we're reading the Word, we're studying the Word, but no way, no how could the response to the question, what does that mean, be we're abiding in the word. There are churches, collections of churches, maybe even what you might call associations of churches who emphasize the idea of sitting under the teaching but not necessarily receiving any kind of shepherding, submitting to the church one to another, Ephesians 4, or even the idea of repenting for sin, um, the need to be serving one another, pouring into one another's lives. I always think of Galatians 6. You probably do too. 
when one is caught in sin. And what does that text mean? It's the same as the idea in Proverbs 5. When you're entangled in the cords of your sin, you need help. You need someone to help lift you out and snip those cords with the power of the gospel. The person who says, I just come for the teaching, but he's not involved in anybody's life. He's ignoring the teaching if the teaching is faithful. This is as black and white a truth as there is. It's not about church attendance. But of course, if you're going to be involved with the church, you have to be with the church. And it can't. Friends, you must understand, it cannot be a matter of convenience. Involvement with Christ, with his church, is of the highest priority for those who actually know him. What do I mean by that? I mean they abide in his word. They're faithful. We're not talking about perfect attendance. We're not talking about any level of perfection. We're simply talking about representing the one whose perfection is known and manifest in a person's life because he rests in him and therefore he obeys him. And that's the love of his life. It's not cumbersome. You know? He doesn't regularly say, oh, I don't want to go to church. Ugh. That's not what the believer thinks. It's not what he says. When he's unable to be with the church, he longs to be with the church. He loves the church. Why? Because the church's head is Christ. There is no such thing as a churchless Christianity. It just doesn't exist. Verse 48 says, The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You think, what in the world was going on in their minds? What are they responding to? Well, you know, last week we looked at this reality that whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. He's telling them, you're not of God. You, you play the game. You play it better than anybody. That's why they're called Pharisees. You know, the person who plays this game better than anybody, he finds himself in a faithful local church. The jig is up. Faithful believers look at a guy like that and say, you can't be serious. At some point, that game player either comes to the end of himself or the loving process of Matthew 18, church restoration, corners him with a saturation of love. Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of the friend, deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. But that environment where people only come for the teaching, and that's actually promoted. You know, it's easy to be the person who gives the, the faithless, really deceptive kisses of the enemy. They all kind of pat each other on the head, and there's no relationships. There's no what we call family groups. There's no actual koinonia. There's no interdependence. I mean, think of your own physical body. What part can you do without? Which part would you say, you know what, I, no problem. Your spleen, maybe? What good is it? But that's how we think about the body of Christ, so we could probably do without him. 
But sadly, in an inverted sense, some would say they could totally do without me. Is that true? And I'm asking you, is that true about you? How would the Anchor Bible Church function? Would we limp without you or not? See, that's how you know whether or not you're faithful to Christ. Does the church limp without you? If it doesn't, you're of no help. You're of no use. Those are the words of Peter, 2 Peter 1. Calls us to no longer be fruitless, to no longer be useless. That's why we call you to church membership. So you would be what some would call plugged in. I like the term grafted in. You know, there's this interdependence. That's the body of Christ. It's the false evangelical church that calls you to just come in and listen to the teaching. I mean, watch it on TV if you're going to do that, right? Because eventually you're going to realize, I need people. I need people. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? See, because they couldn't refute his doctrine. They couldn't refute the matter of the fact that the person who is of God obeys Christ's word. They can't refute that. So what do they do? They engage in racism. Ethnic discrimination. So you're a Samaritan. Why would we believe you? First of all, he wasn't a Samaritan, but even if he had been, what would be wrong with that? Are we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? So they couldn't refute his doctrine, so they attacked his character. You've seen this time and time and time again. Amongst those who don't like a person's doctrine, they start fabricating things about that person's character. And when they do see literal flaws, they amplify them. Like a bigger deal out of a person's sins than they really are. They refuse to let love cover a multitude of sins. Right? Reject the doctrine by rejecting the person by fabricating falsifications about the person. When Jesus called attention to their evil conduct, they attempted to sully his reputation. Back in verse 41, you are doing the works of your, your father did. We're doing it right now in this moment. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So it's kind of a twofold effort. They're, claim, they're making this false uh, claim to being children of God while stating that he himself was born out of sexual immorality. Another falsification. But to be accused of having a demon was one thing, yet to be called a Samaritan was the greatest of insults. But Jesus gave no credibility to the ethnic slur. Rather, he stayed on topic. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now there's more in this statement than what you might think when first looking at it. With no uncertainty, he has already made their devilish condition known by saying, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Just as the devil speaks out of his own character, so do his children. One of the most obvious marks of the false convert is that he has no problem coloring the truth. 
And when he's pressed about it, when he's confronted over it, he's already ready. He's worked hard to be ready to explain why he didn't say what he actually said. These people couldn't handle the truth. Why? Because their father hated the truth. Their father was the father of lies. There's this personification of dishonesty. The point is that when his lips move, dishonesty comes out. Lies flood from his tongue because he's the father of lies. And those who are children of the father of the lies have the same character. And they're known by their character. Their comments are nothing more than childish playground retaliation against the truth pouring from the depths of their wicked hearts through their mouths. This retaliation flooding from their hearts right off their lips as they respond to, their, to the truth in their inability to receive it. Luke 6.45, Jesus says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, but... The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Again, like I said in the beginning, this is just the most black and white, simple, easily understood reality in the Bible, and yet it's the most attacked, isn't it? And how many times have you heard someone say, well, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. That's between him and the Lord. And it's not between him and the Lord. It's between him and the church. If not, then what are all the commands in the Bible for that call us to assess each other's lives? And at some point, having assessed someone not to be a believer, to dismiss him from the church out of love for him, to turn him over to Satan. What are those commands for? We put a lot of emphasis around here on Proverbs 4.23. But let's go back to verse 20 and look at it in context. Proverbs 4.20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. This is the plea of a loving father who knows that his son has a proclivity for doing that which doesn't honor the Lord and is going to destroy his life. That's what a loving father does. He counsels his son. I had literally zero instruction as a kid zero from my parents. My dad died when I was eight, and I was thinking about this the other day. I, I uh, asked a friend if I could get a copy of um, my picture from the third grade, and so she posted it on Facebook, and I'm looking at these faces of you know, people I, I see every few years if I go to the reunion, which I usually don't, um, but I see their faces every uh, few years, and I'm looking at my face, and it's a face of a sad kid. My dad had died earlier that year. But interestingly, I I thought, you know, it was almost like a lot didn't change because I had zero instruction as a kid. I don't remember my dad telling me one time to do anything. He found out that I was smoking cigarettes when I was seven. (laughs) And and I remember the conversation. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like it was yesterday. He says, I heard you've been stealing my cigarettes. Now, he had left. He had abandoned the family. Now he's back in the house and you know, he didn't look at me. He just said, I heard you've been stealing my cigarettes. And, and all I knew to say was, what? <laughs> and what am I going to say? I heard you've been stealing my cigarettes. Second time. Hmm? Scared to death. I didn't know what to do. And that was the end of the conversation. Nothing. I mean, there was no instruction about why that's not a good idea. Well, what kind of credibility did he have? They were his cigarettes. 
Now, I'm not talking about cigarettes this morning. You know that, right? I'm telling you, I didn't have any instruction as a kid at all. What a horrible way to grow up. Now, I had a lot of blessings in my childhood, so I don't want to dismiss the significance of that. But I'm telling you, the heart of Solomon is to pour into his sons. Now, my sons might one day stand in a pulpit and say, I had so much instruction, I could hardly stand it. I don't know. We hope not. <laughs> we'll see. But in verse 21, we see, let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Men, you should be begging your children to hear your words. For their life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart. Guard your heart. Watch your heart. Know your heart. How do you know your heart? You ask other people to observe your heart based on your speech, your conduct, and where your eyes go. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. See, because the speech flows out of the heart. Speech shows what's going on in the heart. Verse 25, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. This means stop looking at pornography. Stop it. That's what he's saying. Keep your eyes away. Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh. And I could name some names this morning of men in our church who have taken this so seriously. And they said, you know what? I don't really need a computer because my soul is far more important than my fleshly gratification. And men, if you're struggling with that or whatever, you need men to know what's going on in your life with your speech and with your eyes. Women, you too. You're not immune nor exempt. Verse 26, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways, then all your ways will be sure. Be careful where you go. Don't go to places you shouldn't go. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Why? Because out of the mouth speaks the heart. Because the heart is the wellspring of life. And you cannot singularly assess this about yourself. I mean, think of the deceptive reality of the human heart. What a fool for a person to think that he himself, in his folly, is able to assess his life by himself. Typically, the person who's convinced he can do that won't receive counsel from those who love him enough to tell him what he needs to hear. But praise God for the many humble men and the many humble women in our church who do not just receive it but look for it. You know, if you're not looking for correction, then don't, don't give it. I mean, forget it. Don't think that you've got credibility to give anybody else instruction if you yourself are not pleading for instruction and an occasional reproof and rebuke. Listen to Proverbs 10, 11, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. People who are actually of God 
are a source of life to those around them. But those who are not of God show their wickedness by hiding their sin and engineering the sins of others. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. But why are they in this condition, the Pharisees to whom Jesus is speaking? Why are they in this condition? Go back to verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? Why is it, folks? Why is it? There are those who kind of get into a, what you might call a religious rhythm. You know, they like the Bible, sort of, like being around Christian people, a lot nicer than people at work many times. Uh, they're, they're in this religious, on this religious pathway, and they kind of like it. And then they come up against a solid, strong doctrine in the Bible, and they resist it, and they do everything to refute it, and they pit the Bible against the Bible. Why? Why? Jesus explains it in verse 43 when he says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear my word. That's why. That's why. When our children are small, they can't bear our words, so we use our hands. We discipline them while there's hope. Just a few days ago, I said, Charlotte, off the piano. Charlotte, stop playing the piano. Okay, Daddy. Plunk. And she sits down. Now, that's not how it works. I'm sorry. Now, in the past, it was, you know, Charlotte stopped playing the piano. You know, and off she goes. Now it's like, okay, I get it. Dad's thinking he's in charge. So um, I, guess I'll, I guess I'll cooperate a little bit until he turns around. That's not how it works. There must be a willingness to receive my word. That's an illustration of how the Lord demands of us that we obey his every word. I mean, think of it. When, when you see the Great Commission in Matthew 28, what prefaces that? What's the foundation upon which the Lord calls us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? What's the premise? It is that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so what are we to teach people? To obey Jesus' word every now and then, but with a little plunk here and there. No, it's to obey his every word. And the person who presumptuously mixes a little bit of salty, selfish, fleshly gratification here and there into his, what he calls obedience, is presumptuously living in such a way that you can't know that he even knows the Lord. There's no reason to think that a person is of God while he grips his fleshly lifestyle. He hangs on to it rather than gripping or abiding in the Word of God. 
Why do you not understand what I say? Because you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, a whole lot of people, a whole lot of unregenerate false converts can swallow a lot of God's word because it's what we call axiomatic truth. In other words, it's obvious. It's self-evident, the existence of God. It's self-evident. You don't need to prove that to anybody. Everybody knows God exists. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But of course he doesn't believe that. So you don't need to prove that to anybody. Any false convert is going to believe the axiomatic truths of the Bible. It's the difficult truths. It's the hard truths that separate the true believer from the false convert. Instead of receiving his word, they seek to kill him. It's a little bit of a problem. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. They're imprisoned in and by their sin. Those who are imprisoned in and by their sin may only be set free from that sin by the liberating truth that they hate and cannot bear. They demand to be affirmed as children of God, having never been adopted. They think they don't need adoption because they believe they were born into spiritual privilege or have ushered themselves into spiritual privilege. They do not abide in the truth that would set them free. You remember in 831, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But Jesus goes on to make it clear that they are not believers. They're not regenerate, and yet they believed him. What did they believe at that point? They had acquiesced to the reality that he is from God. It does not make a person a believer simply because he's willing to say that Jesus is from God. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So in response to the false accusation that he has a demon, he simply says to them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. See, he could have exalted himself at this point. He could do that anytime he wanted. But instead, he emphasizes the reality that he honors his father while they dishonor the father's son, therefore dishonoring the father. I honor my father and you dishonor me. Verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. He has no need of exalting himself as he knows the Father will do that in the proper time. He trusts the Father in his providence for the accurate and right timing in all things. Later in John 17, verse 1, we'll look more closely at this, but it's certainly helpful for us in this moment. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. How many times have we heard Jesus say, the time has not yet come? And now he's saying it has. And with that, the point is, 
that the Father will glorify the Son. See, where we are this morning in John 8, he's saying, I don't need to do that. The Father's going to do that. In chapter 17, he says, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Whom does Jesus have the authority to give eternal life? Those and only those that the Father has given to him. He is the judge. He seeks my glory. He will ascribe that glory in the proper time. He will one day say, and has actually already said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But Jesus returns to the truth of eternal life while they again reject the truth. He has said, if you keep my words, you are truly my disciples. But his point here is that because you don't keep my word, you're not of God. In verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And what happens here is, is common to what happens to those who don't receive truth. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus had said to the Jews who were persuaded of his deity, but still not of God, still children of their father, the devil. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But they did not abide in his word. They kept pockets of disobedience, at the very least. He said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And their response is similar to that of the dead-hearted, earthly-minded response of the Pharisee Nicodemus, to which Jesus responded, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is so simple. Do you question whether or not you have eternal life? Abide in his word and you will know. If you do not abide in his word, you do not have eternal life. Back in John 5, verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What is their response? Bickering. Theological bickering. Fleshly, microscopic analysis of the letters of his words with no interest in the eternal life-providing spirit of his words. Jesus had explained to Nicodemus that he needed life that he could not grasp, he could not achieve, and he could not create. He needed that which he did not understand because he was earthly-minded, earthly-bound, and earthly-imprisoned. He knew nothing of heavenly truth while he was the ultimate expert in the letter of the law. A Pharisee. 
You know the story. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And like I mentioned last week, there are so many folks who have some awareness of the Bible and consider themselves experts with enough knowledge with which to insult anyone with whom they disagree. Nicodemus didn't come with an insulting mindset, but he certainly came with an earthly mindset when Jesus made it clear, you must be born again. Nicodemus chose to focus on the inability, the impotence of the illustration. Not literally, no, Nicodemus, not literally to go back into your mother's womb. You know better than that. Jesus is using a figure of speech. What could Nicodemus do? He could acknowledge that he's a Pharisee. That's what he could do. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is not a grasping of the Spirit any more than you can grasp the wind. What can a Pharisee do? He can say, I am a Pharisee. I am living a lie. I haven't been caught yet. I haven't been exposed yet, but I want to be because I don't want to go to hell. I want eternal life, and yet I know that I'm a double-minded man. Nicodemus knew he was committed to the letter of the law, but knew that he had no heavenly ability to understand the spirit of the law. Same with the Jews back in chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then they left. Because the hard sayings of Jesus' mind, Jesus' heart, Jesus' life were too much to bear. If I'm going to abide in his word, it's just too much, just Give me the amenities. Just give me the luxuries. Just give me the comforts of the Christian faith. I don't want the sacrifice. I don't want to serve. I don't want people to know my life. I don't want people in my business. I don't feel like I really need help, even though my life proves that I do. I got this. And they rejected his word. No interest in abiding in his word. Therefore, they didn't understand his word. They couldn't hear his word. They couldn't bear his word. So he lets them wallow in their earthly sinful zeal without knowledge. As they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. What about the prophets? The prophets died. How come the prophets didn't? avoid death. Again, he's speaking about a death that they don't understand and a life that they don't understand. They choose to only think through an earthly lens. That's all they know how to do. Who do you make yourself out to be? I, I don't know. I, I don't want to speculate too much, but I, 
I would think Jesus probably dropped his head at that point and did this. Really? I mean, that's what I would do. I think it would be fair if he had done that. He allows them to continue their display of their inability to understand heavenly truth, trusting in his Father's timing to reveal who he is. He, he didn't grasp his deified prerogatives, right? Philippians 2, he divested himself of his deified prerogatives. This is an expression of that, his willingness to live as a man, trusting the Spirit, trusting the Father. I glorify myself. My glory is nothing. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you don't know him as evidenced in the fact that you reject his word. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I am not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. It's critical that you understand that this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternal life and a matter of eternal death. And like, like the person who's been physically bound by a cord and tucked away in some box is the person who is imprisoned by his sin and he needs you. He needs you. He needs you to help him understand that in that he does not keep Jesus' word. His life is a constant reflection of the fact that he does not keep Jesus' word. He is not of God, and he does not have eternal life. But you know that in certain circles, he or she operates in such a way that a lot of people are persuaded to think that he does. And the testimony then of the body of Christ is damaged. Out of love for him, out of love for those that he potentially influences, it's critical that you and I embrace the right mindset about this. And where does that mindset come from? I think Paul the Apostle helps us with that mindset in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And as you know, some folks recoil at the whole thought of God having chosen anyone. That's a sign. That's a problem. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, the context here is the body. That's the context. You're exercising forgiveness. You're working hard at being compassionate. You're working hard at being humble. 
thinking less of yourself and more of others, considering others, in fact, to be more important than you. And it's not just a matter of kind of wallowing around in your mind thinking that, oh, those folks are so much important than me as you sit there peeling your own grapes. Rather than taking two minutes after our worship service and finding out how you might be able to serve someone else. See, as the body is strengthened by the body, by trusting the body's head, that's what makes us compassionate for each other and therefore compassionate to a lost and crooked world. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Is that not convicting? For those who have nothing to do with the body of Christ? Can I just be bold and say you're not a believer? It's just simple, folks. The most unloving thing I could do is say, well, you know, this situation and that one. No, you're not a believer if you're not involved in the body of Christ. You're not part of the body if you're not part of the body. For those of you who are, in many cases, it's probably high time that you sit down with that false convert and say, look, I don't know if you have tomorrow. I don't know if I have tomorrow, but we have right now. And, and, you know, what clouds all this is, oh, but, I, you know, I love Jesus. I had a guy tell me not long ago, but I love the body of Christ and has spent zero time with the body of Christ in the last six years. You don't love the body of Christ. You might love the concept of ecclesiology. That's what you probably love. You don't love the body if you're not involved in the body. Above all, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Here's one of the things you could be thankful for. You can be thankful for your involvement in the body. And I can say that about so many of you, because you are so faithfully and sacrificially and lovingly and effectively involved in the body. So the body can say, yeah, that's a needful part. That person has proven himself to be of God by being involved in the body. You say, I have extenuating circumstances. Praise God, then we have an extenuating responsibility to you. Maybe we need to minister to you in your home. Maybe you need that ministry from us, but you are to be thankful. It's a command. How do you do that? Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, the person who can't bear the Word of God, can't hear the Word of God, doesn't understand the Word of God, certainly doesn't let the Word of God dwell richly in him. Be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, this is where it gets practical, and we're going to do this in a few minutes. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, to each other, and to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through
Father, we love your son. Oh, Lord, thank you for this clear expression of the fact that those who have eternal life abide in your word. Lord, help us, help me, help each of us to be honest about where we fall short to abide in your word, to clutch your word, that we might more faithfully honor you, exalt you, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other. We ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.